We're going to continue our summer in the Psalms. Um, Last week, Psalm 1. This week, Psalm 2. Uh, If you would pray with me. Father, uh, we thank you for your word. Thank you for the Psalms. Um, As Luther said, it's kind of a a little Bible in itself. All all the whole story uh, of Jesus can be found in those 150 psalms. And we thank you um, for these first two that help introduce us uh, to the rest of the Psalter. We thank you for preserving them. Even as the apostles said, as Ian just read in Acts 4, um, the Holy Spirit spoke through David to write Psalm 2. So these are your words. Help us, Holy Spirit, to, to hear you speak to us. And apart from you, apart from your work in our hearts, these words will, will mean nothing. Uh, would you come and uh, do something in us um, as your word is uh, preached and explained? Would you, would you cause us to trust King Jesus? Uh, we ask in his name. Amen. Well, uh, moving back to East Tennessee has been a joy for our family, but one of the reasons it's been a joy for me is that I get to live in Vol country again. You don't like orange? I love orange. I love volunteer orange. So everywhere I go, I get to see orange again instead of the burnt orange that I used to see in Texas. Um, and, and now I know that when people are talking about UT, they're talking about the real UT, not the UT that's in Austin. And this is coming from one who, who has family members who graduated from the other UT in Austin. Um, Micah and I are looking forward to this fall when we will hopefully hear uh, the sweet sounds of Rocky Top floating through the mountain air once again. So. Uh, so we're, I'm excited to be back in Vol Country. My my question is, saying all that weird stuff is, why do we get so excited? Some of you don't, I understand, but you get excited about other things. Why do people get so excited about college football? Why do we want to wear their colors and sing their songs and spend our money on their stuff and cheer them on to victory and uh, stay loyal to them in their losses? Hopefully, I mean that's what true fans do. Um, why do we do that? Why do we want to indoctrinate our children into uh, the kingdoms of our college teams? I've got a friend in Texas whose son is going to A&M, Texas A&M next year, the school whose name shall not be mentioned, but I just did. Um, and she posted a picture of him there at the orientation at A&M uh, this past week, and she posted a picture of him. There they are at Texas A&M, and she said, let the indoctrination begin um, why do we do that? My theory, and your next question is, what does that have to do with Psalm 1 and 2? Um, well, I think here's what's going on. The college football fan, in my estimation, is like the righteous person described in Psalm 1 that we looked at last week. Um, because the college football fan delights in everything that can be known about his or her team and meditates on it day and night. That's what we talked about last week. There's no doubt where that person's loyalty lies because 
They delight in everything about their team and they meditate on it day and night. Here's what I'm trying to say. We give our attention and our affections to that which we have given our allegiance. Attention and affections follow allegiances. Last week, Psalm 1, we talked about our attention and our affection being given to God and His Word. This week in Psalm 2, we're talking about our allegiance being given to Jesus the King. And yes, it doesn't have to be college football. It could be whatever you have given your allegiance to and also now give your attention and your affections to. Um, It could be another team. It could be a TV series. I mean, really, you watch TV now and then there's all this social media storm going around a television show. You can get online and learn about all the characters. Crazy. Um, do you have a musical group or artist that you give your allegiance to? I just saw a um, biography of David Cassidy, who was Keith Partridge and the Partridge family. Any old people with me on that? Remember that? Sad story. Um, he was worshipped by teenage girls like a god. And he, he was crushed under the weight of their adoration and worship. Um, and it drove him into, why, why do we do that? Why do we give ourselves to clubs or organizations or hobbies or, or movements? Um, so I think what these psalms, in my mind, are doing together is, is saying that I will give my learning and my love to what or whomever I've given my loyalty. And, um, and so that's, that's kind of how these two are connected. Last week I showed you uh, that these two psalms actually do go together, um, and I'd encourage you to read them all together. They both start, uh, they, Psalm 1 starts with the word blessed, and Psalm 2 ends with the concept of being blessed. So Psalm 1 describes what the blessed man or woman is like. Psalm 2 also has a, a description of what the blessed person is like. Um, and so, together, they tell us what it means to live your blessed life now uh, and forever. So, we need to jump into Psalm 2 as quickly as we can here so that we can uh, have time to enjoy the Lord's table. What I'd like to do is try to summarize the content of Psalm 2 for you um, in a couple of ways, and then I want to try to show you you know, what does it mean for your, um, for your life right now? Um, first, real quickly, I want to divide and summarize Psalm 2 into two parts. There, there are two perspectives in this psalm. There's two proclamations being made. So first, uh, the first proclamation or perspective is the rebel who speaks in the ridiculous rage of arrogance and, and essentially says this. This is the good life. This is the blessed life. I will be free. I will cast off God's confining rule. I'll throw away his suffocating rules. My loyalty lies with me. Therefore, I will listen to what I want to learn, and I will love what I want to love, because I rule. So that's the rebel. The other perspective that the psalm gives us is the perspective of the righteous ruler. 
And so uh, the righteous ruler answers the rebel in righteous and redeeming anger and says this. There's only one way to the good life. There's only one way to the blessed life. True freedom is found when you repent of your rebellion and rest in my rule. I rule. I am the sovereign who saves. I'm the king who is kind. I'm the Lord who loves. And the righteous ruler asks, which side of my rule do you want to experience? My justice or my mercy? So that's one way to look at it in those two perspectives. A second way to look at Psalm 2 is to see it, as Bruce Waltke says, as four acts in a play. So there's four voices speaking in Psalm 2. There's the narrator, the one writing the psalm, and he speaks at the beginning and the end of the drama in verses 1 and 2 and in verses 10 to 12. Then there's the second voice is the voice of the rebels, They speak in verse 3. And then in verse 6, Yahweh, or God, or Yahweh, who is I am, speaks in verse 6. And fourthly, the anointed king, or Messiah, speaks in verses 7 through 9. So with that in mind of those four voices, listen to these four acts. And look, I'd invite you to look at Psalm 2 as I'm walking through this. So, it starts off with the narrator asking a rhetorical question at the beginning. And the question is, why would you rebel against an er- a righteous king? Why would you rebel against a righteous king? So Act 1, verses 1 through 3, the scene is earth. And we find the rebel kings have resolved to throw off the rule of Yahweh and his king. Act 2, verses 4 through 6, the scene is now the court of heaven. And Yahweh resolves to establish his rule and execute retribution through his appointed king. Act 3, verses 7 through 9, now the scene is Mount Zion or Jerusalem. Um, And in this act, the Messiah, the anointed king, announces his right to rule and his right to to dole out retribution to rebels. And then finally, Act 4 is verses 10 through 12, and the scene is back to the narrator on stage. And the narrator takes the stage to call for a response from all rebels to this king. The narrator then answers the question he asked at the beginning, which was, why rebel against a righteous king? He answers that question by saying, There remains a refuge for rebels who repent and run to the king, but there will surely be retribution for those who run from him. So that's Psalm 2 in a nutshell. And I know you think, well, hey, we've heard Psalm 2. Let us leave. No, you have to stay. So here's here's what we're going to do. Pastor Jimmy is calling an audible here just for a moment. We're going to look at Acts 1 and 2 today, and I'll wrap up next week. Um, So, here's Psalm 2 in a nutshell again. Why rebel against a righteous king? The narrator says, try it. Here's how it's going to play out. You will rebel and claim your own rule. 
Yahweh will be rightfully angry at your ridiculous attempt to rebel and you will come under his wrath. Yahweh will establish a human king who will redeem rebels who repent and find refuge in him, but who will utterly ruin those rebels who continue to run from him. That's Psalm 2. So now let's talk about, so how do I use this kind of strange psalm? It's not a touchy-feely warm one that we're used to. It's not Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. This is the Lord is my angry king. Um, How do I use that in my daily life? Um, So in your bulletin, there's an outline, four ways I look at this. Um, Verses 1 and 2, there's already a ruler. Verse 3 is the anatomy of rebellion. Uh, Verses 4 through 9, the anointed ruler. And verses 10 to 12, there's an appropriate response to this ruler. So verses 1 and 2, let's go back and look at this again. There is already a... A ruler. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, and then verse 3, uh, the psalm assumes that the Lord is already the ruler. There's, there's already a ruler. Um, and uh, so as I pray through the psalm and use it, um, in, in my time with God, when it, when it comes up in my reading, um, I start off by thinking, yeah, there's already a, a ruler, and it's not you, Jimmy. The job of the ruler of the universe is already feel, filled, Jimmy, so quit sending in your application. Um, so what does that mean, there's already a ruler? Well, first, God rules and reigns over all things and all people. Yeah, I know, that's what the Bible says. And this is a theme of the entire 150 Psalms. Um, Psalm 95 says, For the Lord is a great God and a great King above all gods. O come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker. So God rules and reigns over all things and all people, regardless of what anyone thinks. But what kind of king is he? We learned that God is a righteous ruler. And this is not what we're used to, having a righteous ruler. Let me, help me respond to this. If I say absolute power corrupts, absolutely, um, you, you get that, don't you? I messed that up. I was supposed to say absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Thank you. This is, this is typically how we think of kings and rulers. I mean, we live in a country that threw off the reign of another king so that we could do our own thing. Um, we're not used to um, this biblical concept of, yeah, you, you were made to be ruled. We're just not used to that. But what we, one of the reasons we struggle with being ruled by God is because we don't know what it's like to be ruled by a perfectly righteous ruler a perfectly loving Lord, a perfectly kind king. But Psalm 45 says this, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. 
And if you look around and listen to what the way we talk about our leaders and our desire for righteous leaders, you can hear the longing of ones made in the image of God who long to be led by loving and righteous, holy, just leaders. It's in us. You and I were made to live in submission and service to Jesus, the great, glorious, good, and gracious King. In fact, we were made to rule alongside him. Remember that in creation, in Genesis 1, it says we were made in the image and likeness of God. We were made to be co-rulers, vice-regents with him, um, to be in perfect relationship with God and with each other and with all that he's made. And so, like Adam and Eve, we've all been put in a particular place to reflect this king's greatness, glory, goodness, and grace as representatives made in his image. We were made to love God and to serve him and to love and serve others, to use our heart and our head and our hands in a way that says to God and to other people, you first, not me first. I love how Paul Tripp describes it. He says, I represent a king who has placed me where I am, and so everything I do and everything I say should, in, should be in some way representing him, his will, his plan, his message, his purpose, his character, his grace. And I take seriously that by amazing grace, I have been chosen to be an ambassador of the Lord who rules it all. And I've been placed in relationships where I actually have an opportunity to represent him, the king, in the lives of others. What a high calling, he says. What a reason for breathing. And this is why the psalmist asked that question at the beginning. Why would you rebel against a righteous ruler like this? Indeed, why, why would we want to live outside of the way we were made to live? Why would we want to live out of step with the person for whom and the purpose for which we've been made? Who wouldn't want to live in a world ruled by a perfectly great, glorious, good, and gracious ruler who invited us to join him in his work in the world and gave us all that we need to enjoy perfect personal relationships perfectly purposeful work and creativity, all in a place of perfect peace and prosperity. That's what we were made for. And that's what Adam and Eve rejected when they rebelled against God. And so that leads us to verse 3, the anatomy of rebellion. Verse 3, this is what the rebel says, let us burst their bonds apart, the Lord and his anointed, and cast away their cords from us. Verse 3 is a great anatomy of the heart of the rebel because those rebel kings and the people whom they represent, they all inherited that rebellious heart from Adam and Eve. When Adam and Eve conspired to cast off God's rule, they broke his law. So the heart of this rebellion is a casting off of God's rule. And and it's to replace it with self-rule. It's a casting off of God's command to love God and to love others with a you-first heart. And then we replace it with the lawlessness of a me-first heart. 
John Calvin said that the Psalms, unlike any other book of the Bible, um, are a mirror that exposes and explains the anatomy of the soul. And so here, Psalm 2 exposes our souls quite well. The Bible calls it the sin of rebellion. It's the heart's rage against God's ruler and his rules. Um, it's interesting that in Psalm 1-2, when it says um, the rulers take counsel together, or no, in verse 1, the people's plot in vain, that word plot is the same word as the word meditate in Psalm 1. In Psalm 1, the blessed person meditates on the word of God because he delights in it. In Psalm 2, the rebel meditates on his angry uh, chafing under the rule of God. The you first heart chews on God's word, on God's commands to love him and to love others. And when it does, it moans with delight as it chews and says, yes, this is what I love, this is what I want. But the me first heart chews and churns on its desire to rule its own kingdom. And therefore... It rejects the Christ-centered and others-oriented kingdom of God as a tasteless, dull, boring thing. Why would I want to chew on God's word? I'm enjoying this morsel of rebellion that I'm enjoying here. Again, Paul Tripp describes the rebel cry well. He says, my life is directed by the purposes of my own kingdom, my wants, my needs, my feelings. And my life is shaped by what I decide I want for my life, what I decide I want for my relationships, what I decide for how I'm going to spend my time, what I decide for how I'm going to invest the energies of my life. I am in control of my life. I do what pleases me. And if you don't have a relationship with God, Tripp says, if you don't believe in this being as ultimate, and if you don't embrace his grace in your life, if you don't believe in his call, it only makes sense to live selfishly. Why would you not? What is ultimate is what you want, what you feel, and what you need. And I want to remind us that Psalm 2 teaches that there can be no true happiness, no blessedness, no blessed life when we're in rebellion against God. Psalm 2 teaches that happiness wholeness, and wholeness only come when we submit to this righteous ruler, not conspire against him. So next week, we'll look at how God responds to this rebellion. Um, how does God respond to people who were made to rule alongside with him, um, who were made uh, to be in communion with the glorious, great, gracious, good king, and yet who have chosen to rebel against him. How does God respond? And then what should be our response? Um, I'll give you just a little hint. <laughs> because that hint points us to this table. Um, God responds by, because he's a just God, by not allowing the rebellion to continue. Basically, the rest of the psalm says, you have two opportunities 
to respond to God's rule, um, to that iron fist. You can either experience the backside of the king's hand or his palm, his open hand of invitation and provision. That's sobering, but it's also hopeful. Uh, Derek Kidner says, there is no refuge from Jesus. There's only refuge in him. And friends, that's what this table is all about. It's an invitation. Do you want, you want justice? You want the backside of his hand? Or do you want his open hand that says, come, look at the scar that's in my palm. This is the kind of king I am. I loved you so much that I took my father's wrath for your rebellion in your place. Friends, I don't know about you, but I want the open palm with the pierced scar in it. And so this table offers you, um, offers you the hand of Jesus that was nailed to the cross of wood for your sake. Let's pray. Father, we, we recognize in ourselves that rebel heart. I see it in myself every day. That heart that just wants to fight and say, no, I want to do it my way. I want to do it my way. And Jesus, we know that the gospel teaches us that you took the backside of the Father's hand so that we could have the open palm of welcome and invitation. And so we come to this table and ask that you would uh, set aside the bread and the juice from its normal everyday use and uh, Allow it to be for us, again, another reminder of your great and glorious and good and gracious heart as our King. And would you, by your Spirit, soften our hearts into submission to you? Would you enable us to to rest in your heart for us? to rest in your rule over us. Um, There is no refuge apart from you. There is only refuge in you. Convince us of that at this table today, we ask in Jesus' name.